Friends, would you open your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 24, 1 Samuel 24. Uh, As you're turning there, I have a story that's vaguely, vaguely related to our text, and that is uh, Facebook reminded me this morning of an awkward moment in my marriage. Today is my wife's birthday. It's her birthday, so if you see her, Julie, my wife, please uh, tell her happy birthday. Actually, yesterday was her brother, which is Kenny McWilliams, who just led us in worship. His birthday was yesterday, so say that to him as well. Five years ago today, Facebook told me, uh, we were celebrating Julie's birthday for the first time in India. We had moved there to do church planting, to do business development. Uh, and so that was, we had only been there for a couple of months and we were missing home. And so I wanted to make Julie's first birthday there very special. So I found this incredible Italian restaurant in downtown Bangalore. We go, it's amazing. It feels a little bit like home. But the way to get there and back is transporting through an auto rickshaw. If you've never seen one of those things, they're like a three-wheeled buggy, kind of an open carriage, and you have a driver and then a bench in the back that can really fit about one and a half people comfortably, but I've seen six to eight in one. And so as we're taking the auto rickshaw back from the restaurant, it's a wonderful, romantic mood. We're going back to the apartment. The air is beautiful outside. We're taking in the sights and sounds of India the driver stops the rickshaw and he jumps out and I start to talk to him in English and he starts to respond in Hindi. We don't understand each other. He gives me the five-minute mark and he walks about 10 steps from the auto rickshaw and he relieves himself while we're sitting there in the rickshaw. And so I'm trying to make casual conversation with Julie to keep the mood alive, but everything's gone by that point. He comes, jumps in the rickshaw, takes us the rest of the way home. Julie's in tears. It was awful. Well, today, five years later, on her birthday, we're insulated in the comforts and cleanliness of America, and when we open our passage, her birthday passage, it's the story of a man relieving himself in a cave. It's the story of Saul. I'm going to read that for us this morning, the first 15 verses, and listen closely as we hear from God's word. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, behold, David is in the wilderness of En And Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all of Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goats' rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way where they were in the cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost part of the cave, and the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it seems good to you. And David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, My lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against the Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand, for by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know that there is no reason or wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. 
May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dog? After a flea? May the Lord therefore judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. Let's pray together. God, would you prove yourself to us as our deliverer? Would you deliver us from evil? Would you deliver us from harm? Would you deliver us from complacency? Would you deliver us from small visions of who you are and what you design to do in our lives? We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. On 1 Samuel 24, you have a truly dramatic scene unfolding before us. It all takes place in the wilderness of Engedi, which is on the western side of the Dead Sea. So we drew a little map of Israel when we started this series, and we said the Sea of Galilee is up north. That's where Jesus spends most of his time 3,000 years later. Then you have the Jordan River. That brings us down to the Dead Sea, and all the action of Samuel is happening around that area in the south where the tribes of Benjamin and Judah are. On the west side of the Dead Sea, you have the wilderness of Engedi, and it's this rocky, steep, hilly slope, and it has fresh springs in it, which makes it like an oasis in the desert and a perfect place for David and his now 600 men to go and to make a hiding place. They do that, but Saul hears about it very quickly, and he handpicks 3,000 of his best soldiers, and he goes in pursuit. Now put yourself in David's company. You're there, you're encamped at Engedi, you have a safe hiding spot, but one day a scout runs into the camp and he says, Saul is on the way and he's bringing his army with him. You break camp, you flee into the hills, you spread out over a couple of different caves, you find the biggest and deepest ones and you go into them. And as you're at the mouth of the cave, I bet you could hear 3,000 soldiers marching in your direction long before you could see them. Once they round the corner and they're in view, David's men, they get to the back of these caves and they hold their breath and they wait for the army to pass before them. But something terrifying happens. The army, all 3,000 men, they come to a dead stop directly below the cave they've chosen to hide in. And you can hear them laughing, you can hear them talking, you can hear equipment shuffling. And at the back of the cave, hearts are beating and you've got to wonder... Does Saul know exactly where we are? Is he surrounding the cave right now? Is this it? Is he going to attack us? And as you're wondering all of that, a lone figure climbs the hill and comes into the mouth of the cave. You can't see him at first because there's daylight behind him and he's there at the edge. But once he takes a few steps in and he turns around to relieve himself, you see this is Saul. This is the king of Israel. This is our arch enemy. This is the man who seeks our life and his back is to us and he has no idea that we are deep within this cave waiting behind him. Now I want you to pause right there. We've gotten up to verse three, but we've got to ask the question. This is, this is too marvelous. What is God doing here? I mean, 
Is God the one who is orchestrating these events? How did this happen? Of all the places in the wilderness of Engedi to stop, they stop here. And of all the caves that were up on these hills, they choose this single cave. And of all the 3,000 men in Saul's camp who need to take a number two, Saul, the king himself, is the guy who marches up into this cave and makes himself completely vulnerable before the army. What is God doing here? I can hardly wrap my mind around this. Is this an invitation or is this a temptation? That's what we've got to ask ourselves. And here's the thesis of this sermon. Here's the point that we're driving at and seeking to understand. And that is who we believe God to be will inform us how to determine what we should do. Who God is instructs us what we should do. There's a direct correlation between our impression of God, who we understand him to be, and how we turn around and apply that to our lives. That line is very tight, and we get to, in our passage, watch some folks misstep in their impression of God, and somebody take a strong step towards a right impression of God. We're going to see that as we look at this. The first group of people that takes a stab at interpreting what's going on is David's men. They're in the back of the cave, and when this scene unfolds before him, they grab David in verse 4, and this is what they say to him. Here's the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it seems good to you. Now, they're quoting in our passage, you see quotations around that, but that quote actually never occurs anywhere in the book of 1 Samuel. It appears to be speculative and circumstantial advice. Reason we think that is because David will tell us later in verse 11, it would be a sin to lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. David's men are telling him, you should do this, the Lord is giving him into your hand, this is what we should do, and David is going to tell us later that's not at all what God's doing, because that would be a sin. Now, when David's men do this, when they doctor this advice with Christian language, they actually end up sounding a lot like Saul. Saul says something very similar in just the previous chapter. He says in chapter 23, verse 7, when he finds out that David is encamped at the city of Keilah, God has given David into my hand. That's Saul. He sees the events. He makes that interpretation. Saul has an impression about who God is, and he has an impression about where he stands with God. And because he has that impression, it leads him to draw that application and that interpretation. Therefore, David is in my hands. God has given David into my hands. Now, we know that that's absolutely wrong. We know that God is not who Saul thinks he is, and he does not have that relationship with him. And God has not delivered David into Saul's hand, and that it would be a sin for Saul to hurt David. It doesn't matter what kind of language Saul uses about God and his sovereignty, he's dead wrong. He doesn't know this God, and he doesn't know how to apply these things. David's men are doing the same thing. They have this idea, they have this impression, but they could make all the references to the Lord that they want. It would be sinful for them to lay a hand on the Lord's anointed, to take the kingdom of God by force when God is going to give it as a gift. That's not 
what they should be doing right here. David's men, they're supposed to be part of this new community. We keep making a big deal about this, this community and training around a king in waiting, that, that this image of a community surrounding David gives us a reference point for what the church will become as a community gathers around the resurrected king. These men are supposed to be part of that new community, but they keep with them all of this old way of thinking. It it all sounds opportunistic. It sounds like a bit of folk wisdom that's kind of being passed around the camp from one man to another. You and I, we can understand that. We understand that we, when we get foggy on the nature of God, when it's not clear exactly who he is or what he might do in a certain situation, we tend to, even as Christians, or maybe especially as Christians, lean on trite bits of advice to point each other in the way we should go. You tell a friend, the Lord helps those who help themselves. You tell somebody, Jesus is coming, act busy. We put different language on it, but this is bumper sticker theologizing. Their vision of God is trite. It is circumstantial. They're trying to give advice and they're putting language on it. But not only do they sound like Saul, David's men end up sounding like the serpent in the garden. They say this is an opportunity that's too good to be true. If a tree is good for food and a delight to the eyes and desirable to make one wise, did God really say that you can't have it? I mean, if something this juicy drops right in your lap, is God really saying that it's not for you to reach out and take it? Surely God must be giving this very thing to you. It's a kind of impunity that's based on opportunity. It's a completely wrong impression of God and who he is, and it leads these men to make a wrong application of what they should do. Now we contrast that with David, who sees God very differently. Nobody knows this right now, but David is working in the back of this cave with a very different impression of who God is and what he should do in this situation. He has a different conviction based on that vision. David's men, they're back there, they're urging him to go forward, and so David does. He slips out from the back of the cave, he starts to move forward, he draws his weapon in his hand, he comes in behind Saul, and Saul doesn't even hear him, and then he comes to the back of the cave moments later. Now, waiting in the back of the cave, we don't hear their names, but we understand that these are the men closest to David, who are later going to be introduced, not least his nephews, Joab and Abishai. These men are are born killers. Joab and Abishai, they're going to drop more bodies in 2 Samuel than the Sopranos family. These guys are killers. They know how to do business. They see David go forward. They get excited. David returns. Imagine the look on their faces when David whips out a corner of Saul's rope. They thought they were going to see Saul's head. They were expecting guts and gore, and they get a wardrobe malfunction. They get a little piece of Saul's robe, and David even feels bad that he cut that off, and he tries to explain that to him. Well, when he does that, there's this huge argument in the back of the cave. We read about that in verse 7, where there's an argument in silence where uh, my ESV says in verse 7, David persuaded his, his men with these words. Maybe your translation says something similar, but the Hebrew is much sharper than that. The Hebrew literally reads, and David tore them apart. This is something way harsher than a simple rebuke. This is David grabbing Abishai by the collar and saying, shut your mouth and get behind me, Satan. 
This is not the vision of God that we're working with. When seeing God rightly is at stake, we can be gentle with enemies and fierce with our friends. We're not playing games here about who God is and what he would have us do. Saul, he doesn't know any of this. He doesn't know about the argument. He doesn't know about David behind him. He doesn't know about his robe. He gets up, he leaves. And when he does, David comes to the mouth of the cave and he reveals himself to Saul. And then he reveals his vision of God to Saul and to his men and to us who are reading and watching this scene unfold in front of us. He says, yes, God did orchestrate these events. Yes, God dropped Saul right here into this cave before us. He has done all of this. He is sovereign over all things. But no, he would never have me lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. That's not what I'm supposed to do right now. Why is that? Why shouldn't David take advantage of the situation and do this? He tells us in verse 15, I don't have to do these things because God is going to do them. Look at this verse. Here's David's God that he describes to us. May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. If God is really David's judge and mediator and deliverer, David doesn't have to be his own judge and mediator and deliverer. God is that for him. That is his vision of the nature of God. And if God serves in that capacity and he does that thing and he orchestrates it all by his hands, I don't have to perform that same thing myself. It is God who is going to judge and mediate and deliver. You better believe that that impression of God, that understanding of the nature of God, has everything to do with how to respond our convictions in any given situation. The import of that, thinking about the the connection between those two things, has all kinds of application for us as believers as we think about our relationship with God. John, Pastor John, reminded us last week from chapter 23, just the previous chapter, that great scene where Jonathan, he knows that David is in Horesh, and he rises and goes to him, and the text says he strengthens his hand in God. What a beautiful picture of Christian friendship to come alongside of another person and to strengthen them. David, he needed Jonathan's friendship, but he didn't just need him as a friend. He needed a person who was going to point him to God. He needed God, but he needed a friend who was going to get him there and direct him there and give him a true vision of who God is. You know what's so remarkable to me is when Jonathan sits with David and speaks these words of comfort to him in chapter 23, that's more or less what David turns around and tells Saul in chapter 24. Jonathan essentially sits with David and he says, David, you don't need to be your own deliverer because God is your deliverer and he will save you. The same thing that strengthens David's hand, he's able to turn and share with his men and with Saul. To be that kind of man, Jonathan, who arises and goes to Horesh and strengthens a hand in God, Jonathan himself needed to be a man who was strengthened in God. He himself needed to be a man who was regularly refreshed with a true vision of who God is. That's the only way that he could turn and share that with another person. I mean, think about this. If the short ride to the hospital, if the short 
wait to have a hard conversation with a friend, if the short text to a sufferer is the first time we're cracking open our Bibles to look for a vision of God to sustain us and to strengthen our friends, it's already over. What's the point of even trying to find our vision of God in the Bible if we haven't regularly been refreshed in who this kind of God is? Finding your own version of God in the Bible, it takes too long. You're winging it. We get to watch David's men wing it. They shoot from the hip. They try to describe who God is and what he might have them do, and it's awful. Not only is it wrong-headed theologically, but it's just plain bad advice. Imagine if David had taken the advice of his men. Imagine if he said, you're right, I should kill him. He kills Saul in the cave. Right outside the cave, you have Abner, the commander over Israel, and you have 3,000 of Israel's best soldiers. And the moment they realize that their king is not returning from his bathroom break, they descend on the cave and they obliterate everybody who's in there. If David were to listen to his men every single person would have died. When you're talking about a vision of who God is and how we apply these things to our lives, we're playing for keeps. We're talking about the most desperately serious things in our life. And so we need to ask each other, friend, how are we growing in our vision of who God is and how we turn and apply those very things to our life? How, how is this vision growing in us and how are we understanding the true nature of who God is? I don't mean to say that the better we know God, the more we'll choose the right choice in every situation. A friend of mine reminded me one time that God's providence is as wide as the horizon. What he meant by that is sometimes, as in David's situation, we face a temptation between right and wrong, and knowing the true nature of God will allow us to choose right. But sometimes we're in this wide horizon of God's providence, and we're choosing between good and better and best, and it's not clear what we should choose. What this text is saying is the deeper we know the true nature of God and how he responds in situations, the better equipped we are to do the same. A true, fresh, bold vision of who God is. But I think if we're honest with each other, some of us are still carrying around a stale vision of God. Some of us are borrowing things we learned from a long time ago and we haven't learned anything new about the nature of God, and that will kill us. Some of us are walking into this broad horizon of the providence of God, working off an impression we had of him from a Beth Moore Bible study we took three years ago. I mean, some of us have built an entire theology around an accountability group we used to be in, where we all just listened to the smartest guy in the room. Some of us, we are looking and building our vision of a heavenly father from a vision we got decades ago from our earthly father. We have these small, stale visions of God, and the more we do that, the more we borrow on yesterday and aren't being refreshed in these things, the more our vision of God begins to suffer and to shrink and to take on the personalities and the preferences of the person carrying that vision. Does it surprise us that Joab's God, the God in the back of the cave, is as violent as Joab is? 
Is that any surprise to us? Is it a surprise to us that Saul's God in chapter 23 has the exact same agenda that Saul has? Where our vision of God shrinks, it begins to take on our own personality and preferences, and that won't do. We're talking about a fresh vision of the nature of God that will only come in part by you and I opening his word, this book, the Bible, and studying afresh who he is, praying over this book, and speaking about it with one another. This is where our vision of God comes from. Essentially, we're talking about devotions. We're talking about a quiet time, but I hate the phrase quiet time. That's just always bothered me. There's nothing wrong with it. You can use it with each other. It just sounds so quaint and benign. And we talk about a quiet time like we talk about bowel movements. Have you had one today? Have you had one every day? Do you have it at the same time of day? I mean, it just sounds so quaint. Meanwhile, we should be talking about this unhurried, apocalyptic encounter with the very voice of God. We should be talking about opening up this book and hearing the shepherd's voice over the din of strangers. I'm not saying every time we have our devotions, we turn pages like a Dan Brown novel. That's not what we're doing here. It's not the excitement of that. We are saying this Bible, this book is dynamic because God says when I put it forward, it doesn't come back to me void. So regardless of how you feel when you've opened it and read it and studied and asked a question about it and you go on throughout your day, God says something dynamic is happening in you when you open this book. Now that's going to look very different for every single person in this room. Every single person ought to be a student of this book, but that's going to play out differently for all of us. Some of us were in extremely demanding seasons of our job. It's hard to find that time of solitude to read, and so we're downloading a Bible app to listen to God's word on the way to work and the way home. Some of us were parents of young kids. We can't even imagine that kind of quiet, and so we're grasping at single verses. We're taking a verse like chapter 24 verse 15, this nature of God, and we're taping that thing behind our sink so that when we're there washing the thousandth dish for the day, we can look at this verse and meditate on it and see who God is. Some of us were empty nesters. We enjoy unending times of uninterrupted, tranquil peace. We are the true inheritors of the quiet time. I'm just messing with you. But you can hone your Greek and Hebrew if you're in that situation and don't have kids at home. All of us are finding ways to be students of this book because all of us are working to build an impression of God as he is and not as we imagine him to be. All of us, every one of us, dig deeply into this word to find an impression of the true nature of God that we can carry with us into the wilderness of Engedi. All of us are fighting to have a true impression of God that will fortify us to choose mercy over revenge even when a temptation drops into our laps. All of us are fighting to build a true impression of God that will embolden us to grab a believer by the collar and to tell him to stand down when we need to. When you, like Jonathan, arise to find me in Horesh, 
I need you to strengthen my hand in the God, the God of the Bible, the God of the universe, and not an impression of God you used to have. When we do this, when we dig into this book, when we share this with one another, when we recite these things to each other, when we use these things in our prayer, when we experience these things on Sunday morning in an order of worship, when we do this, we will find the nature of God with David, that he is our judge, he is our mediator, and he is our deliverer. Let's pray together. God, we beg you to refresh our vision. I beg you that you would show the fullness of yourself to us, that we would understand the true nature of who you are. Make us people and students of your word that we can continue to grow and be changed by our vision of you. Would you lead us forward in that? We plead in Jesus' name, amen.